take a deep whiff. Do you smell it? It's college football season. Fall is here, and tonight is the opening night for college football 2013, culminating in the BCS championship game the first weekend in February. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the palatial and outstanding UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. I am Dave Mitchell, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, our weekly get-together here at UltimateSportsTalk.com to talk about what's going on in the world of sports and just what it is that I think about it. That's why you always tune in. And you've got my permission coming up in just about an hour to tune in to Fox Sports and ESPN tonight and get your college football fix, but only after tonight's show. And what are we going to do tonight? Of course, as I said, not only does the college football season open, but also the NFL exhibition season will end as every team will be in action tonight. And if you listen to the pundits, it's a meaningless game, but don't tell that to the guys that are trying to make the 53-man roster. Johnny Manziel received his <laughs> punishment. Yasiel Puig was benched, and we're going to go over the Cleveland Indians and also what happened to Brandon Phillips. That's all coming up on tonight's show. But before we do that, don't forget that you can join us simply here at the Ultimate Sports Talk Show by joining us on the social media. You can email us at dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send us a tweet. That's at OHBBCoHost. That is my Twitter address. Feel free to comment on tonight's show and let me know what you think about what's going to happen in the college football season. Of course, as I said, we're going to get into the joke of a punishment that happened to Johnny Manziel coming up a little bit later on in the show, and we're going to go over the top 25 schedule in college football this weekend. But in case you missed it, a judge has accepted a settlement in which the National Football League has agreed to pay former players $765 million over the issue of concussions. Nearly 4,500 former players were suing the league for the damages they say were incurred because of head trauma in games during their professional careers. U.S. District Judge Anita Brody announced the settlement earlier today, which still must be approved, in Philadelphia. She originally had planned to rule on this case in July, but instead ordered the two sides into mediation, which delivered the result. According to Brody, this is a historic agreement, one that will make sure that former NFL players who need and deserve compensation will receive it, and that will promote safety for the players at all levels of football. Rather than litigate literally thousands of complex individual claims over many years, the parties have reached an agreement that, if approved, will provide relief and support where it is needed at a time when it is most needed. Judge Brody also said that offering this opportunity to the players is an important and interesting matter. Now, the plaintiffs include Hall of Famers such as Tony Dorsett. You remember him of the Dallas Cowboys and Denver Broncos fame. He was also a Heisman Trophy winner at the University of Pittsburgh. And the family of deceased linebacker Junior Seau, 
of New England and, most notably, the San Diego Chargers. He committed suicide last year and whose brain revealed signs of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is CTE, after a lengthy football career. The settlement applies to all retired players, whether or not they have been a part of this suit or not. According to the agreement, the terms of the settlement break down the money as such. Baseline medical exams, which will be capped at $75 million, a separate fund of $675 million to compensate former players who have suffered cognitive injuries or their families, a separate research and education fund of $10 million, the cost of notice to the members of the class, which will not exceed $4 million, $2 million representing half of the compensation settlement administrator for a period of 20 years, and legal fees and litigation expenses to the plaintiff's counsel, which amounts will be set by the district court. Now, Sports Illustrated's Peter King reported the legal fees will be paid out separately, so that could raise the total cost to nearly $1 billion. Well, the monetary total appears to be startling on the surface, and it makes you wonder just how much more it might have been had this gone to trial. But, face it, it's not bank-breaking, as some legal analysts did predict, and it certainly is not a figure that is going to bankrupt the NFL, believe me. They've been awash in profits for years, bringing in somewhere on the order of $10 billion per year. This is just $1 billion. This is what the players are going to get. Now, the NFL will gladly pay this price, steep as it is, not only to save money in the long run with the countless billable hours liable to have been tacked on, but also to prolong, avoid a prolonged ugly trial that would also serve as a public relations nightmare for Commissioner Roger Goodell and the league. Well, upon this ruling, the NFL is also keeping a close eye on hits to the knees of defenseless players this season with the possibility of extending the rules protecting such players. If the league's competition committee finds enough evidence this season that hits to the knees are becoming a problem, it could take action, according to Chief of Football Operations Ray Anderson, who told the Associated Press this on Tuesday. The committee could make a recommendation to the owners next March to prohibit direct hits to the knees of defenseless players. The owners would then vote on such a change. My question is, where are you going to be able to hit somebody? First of all, they have taken away the hits to somebody above the shoulders. Now they're taking it away from the hip and below as they want to get rid of hits below the knees. And keep in mind, as Mike Golick brought up on Mike and Mike the other day, if you have a 200-pound safety like Ryan Clark of the Pittsburgh Steelers trying to take down a tight end, let's say like Atlanta Falcons tight end Tony Fernandez, okay, and they want to bring him down, what are they going to do? Are they going to go low or are they going to try to take him high? And if he does take him high, they're going to be pulled along the ground for another five or six yards. But this is all because of two direct hits to the knees in preseason games that injured Miami tight end Dustin Keller and Minnesota defensive tackle Kevin Williams. They've drawn complaints from the players. Now, if you saw these two hits, you would see that they were pretty much the same. But Keller is out for the season, 
Williams received a hyperextended knee, but because Williams is a defensive player that was hit by an offensive lineman, the offensive lineman was not fine. So tell me how that is fair. That means we're also going to move into another subject here this afternoon. And that means the deal between Aaron Hernandez, the NFL, and this new story that has come out that will be issued in Rolling Stone. It's an investigative report in the new issue coming out in October that dives deep into the personal and professional life of Aaron Hernandez, and it's not pretty. The article was written by Paul Solotarov. It provides many new details about Hernandez, who was indicted last week on first-degree murder and weapons charges in the death of Odin Lloyd. According to the short preview article on the magazine's website, Solotarov obtained many shocking details about the former New England Patriots star through interviews with friends, former teammates, and NFL sources. And on Wednesday's installment of NBC Sports Dash, Solotarov joined the crew to discuss his recent article, which painted Aaron Hernandez as a PCP-using gangster who was leading a self-destructive lifestyle well before the death of Odin Lloyd. Aaron Hernandez was an angel dust-driven, uh, wildly paranoid, um, deeply fearful and violent guy, uh, dating all the way back to at least the time he signed the contract, the $40 million extension um, with the Patriots, and even before that. Here are the revelations provided by the magazine. There are six of them. First of all, Hernandez was a heavy user of angel dust and had become so paranoid over the last year that he carried a gun wherever he went. He surrounded himself with a cohort of gangsters who cut himself off from his family and teammates. Hernandez had so infuriated his head coach Bill Belichick with mispractices and thug life stunts that he was just one misstep from being cut. Both his parents, Dennis and Terry, had criminal records as did much of his extended family, and Terry allegedly cheated on Dennis before his death with a violent drug dealer named Jeffrey Cummings, then married Cummings after Dennis died and moved him into the house that she shared with Aaron. Later in the show, NBCSN's Sean King joined Carolyn Mano and Dave Briggs to raise a few objections regarding Solitaro's piece. Considering the NFL's stringent drug policy, King believes it would have been very difficult for Hernandez to have used as heavily as Solitaro's article suggests that he did. And I thought the article in and of itself was fascinating. I couldn't stop reading the article. But here's the question that I have. He's accusing Aaron Hernandez of being addicted to PCP. In the article, it states that Aaron Hernandez smoked three, four blunts after every game, yet Aaron Hernandez has never failed an NFL drug test since he got in the National Football League. So one of two things is here. Either the article's a lie as far as the drug users are concerned, or the NFL has a significant problem in one aspect of the protocol of their drug testing program. Like, there's a larger message within this article, and it's very interesting, and it's something I like to get to the bottom of, because I love to read fascinating articles, but I like them also to be factually correct. 
And I just don't see a guy that came into the league with the red flags that Aaron Hernandez had because of the issues in Florida being able to circumvent the league's drug policy if he's smoking that amount of marijuana and addicted to PCP. But haven't we been talking about the league's problem with, you know, monitoring the situation? You see it all the time. But I think the NFL is well regarded as the best of all the professional sports leagues in their testing policies. I mean, guys are always getting suspended in the National Football League. Von Miller key player right now for Denver is under suspension. Guys have been bust for Adderall. I mean, it seems like the NFL has the best program in place, mm -hmm. so it's hard for me to believe that there's significant oversight that would allow Aaron Hernandez not to fail these tests. Either that or the article's inaccurate. Well, to be clear on Von Miller, the reports out of Denver are that he spilled a sample, went out, drank a lot of fluids, came back, and it was a diluted sample, not that he turned up and, a positive. And I'm glad that you brought it up because now that even enhances my argument for Aaron Hernandez being able to circumvent the program. That you not only fail for testing positive, yeah. you test, you fail for having diluted samples. So if he's smoking all this marijuana... Well, because if Miller was in the program, things, though. Miller was in the program. But even the random testing, that's a way to fail if you have a diluted sample. They're, they're, you're going to make you take it again or you're going to fail you. You know, I was in the league, so I've been through the testing. I mean, they sit there, they watch you. I mean, it's very uncomfortable, and it's really stringent. But, Sean, let me ask you about the Patriots, because they do not make out well in this article. Forget about the drug test. You've got this report in this magazine article that says, a pre-draft psychology review said Hernandez, quote, enjoys living on the edge of acceptable behavior, the lowest possible score they've ever seen on that test. Do the Patriots have an obligation to do more homework than they did on this? Test? I think they did their homework. You know, I think some organizations are so structured that they feel like they can accommodate some guys that maybe aren't the best individual in the hopes of helping them recuperate and change their lives. Because sports is about more than just being good at that actual sport. Like guys like Tony Dungy, who we just had on the show, they played a huge role in turning young boys into men. And I think when you look at New England, they've done an outstanding job throughout the tenure of Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick at the helm of that organization of really developing guys. Have you been in a situation in a locker room as a former player where you've realized that you don't know a teammate as well as you thought you did? Oh, absolutely, because you don't hang out with these guys like in college. Yeah. Like, people have families. They have separate lives from what you see in the locker room. Yeah, it's easy for me to say. I mean, I talked to him a bunch of times, and I never think that, you know, he was doing what this article claimed, but I guess you just don't know people sometimes. I would like to see the sports media switch places sometime with the Washington, D.C. media because the sports media seems to hang out and try to dig and dig and dig at a story when there is nothing there. We're going to get into that as far as the Johnny Manziel situation. This Aaron Hernandez story that Paul Solitaroff wrote is just full, I feel, with several inaccuracies. Now, are there some things in this article that are probably true? Yeah, I agree. For example, one of the things I understand from a, a, a drug and alcohol rehab counselor that I have been in contact with, and they tell me that, yes, PCP can cause paranoia, and you can also start thinking that people are after you. But one of the things that the article is asserting is that Bill Belichick said that he missed practices and had thug-like stunts. Well, if that's the case, then why is the NFLPA filing a grievance saying that the New England Patriots owe Hernandez an $82,000 workout bonus, that he had fulfilled all his contractual obligations 
for his off-season workout program. And another thing that this article brought up, and I find this completely crazy as far as journalism is concerned, is it says that in college, his coach, then University of Florida coach, Urban Meyer, now at Ohio State, may have helped cover up failed drug tests along with two violent incidents, including an assault and a drive-by shootout outside a local bar. Now, any journalism 101 student going to their, even their city college right up the street understands that the first day in journalism you learn the five W's and H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Nowhere in that credo for journalism does it say anything about the word may. Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow are rolling. They're turning in their graves tonight if they haven't just rolled right over and stuck their butt right up at us. Because the fact of the matter is, may is not a story. Hey, you know, you can look at it and say that George Bush may have lost the election. But that's not the case. So when you put the word may in an article, you had better be talking about the month and not asserting something against a current person. Now, did they cover themselves with that word? Certainly they did. That's a situation where it's going to be awfully hard for Urban Meyer to sue Rolling Stone just simply because they really didn't make an assertion, but yet they did. This is just one crazy situation, and I know I've often said that I'm not going to bring up this Aaron Hernandez court case, but this article has really brought it back to where it shouldn't be, which is on the sports headlines. Let's get back into what's going on in the NFL. Tampa Bay Buccaneers kicker Lawrence Tynes is one of two players on the team getting treatment for MRSA, which is an aggressive staph infection that has left both men sidelined since earlier this month. So how is Tynes' recovery coming along? Well, that depends upon who you're going to ask. On Tuesday, Buccaneers head coach Greg Schiano said the players are responding well to treatment for MRSA. On Wednesday, Tyne's wife, Amanda, went to Twitter to review the coach's assessment. She said on Twitter, I hear my husband is responding well to treatment, LOL. He's not responding at all yet. Seems like there's a little bit of a disagreement there. Amanda Tynes later thanked everyone for their support and seemed to take another dig at the same time by suggesting that her husband is finally being treated by the right people. Well, I hope Tynes gets better soon. But if you remember a few years ago, the Cleveland Browns had the same situation in their locker room where several players had a staph infection and they couldn't seem to get rid of it. Those staph infections are hard to get rid of and Tynes appears to be one of those that is susceptible to them. Well, have you heard about what is going on with former Cincinnati Bengals linebacker Reggie Williams and what he's going through on a daily basis? Williams played for the Bengals from 1976 through 1989. He started in two Super Bowls and is the team's all-time leader among linebackers in most categories, including tackles. 
and 24 surgeries on his right knee. Yep, that's right, 24 surgeries on his right knee. It looks almost unrecognizable. According to a story by the Cincinnati Inquirer's Paul Doherty, Williams is fighting off amputation of his right leg, which doctors tell him is inevitable. His right leg is almost three inches shorter than his left leg after all the injuries. And if you saw a picture, just Google a picture of Reggie Williams' knee. His kneecap looks like a cauliflower head. He hasn't had a meal at home in more than two years because he can't be on his feet long enough to cook. His house during the summer is between 85 and 90 degrees because he can't use the air conditioning or his knee feels worse. He's had the surgeries, the first coming in 1979. He's had knee replacements, multiple infections, which happened in 2008. He was diagnosed with a bone infection, which was not identified for almost two years. And they have left his right leg two and five-eighths inches longer than his left leg. He has no insurance to cover the pre-existing conditions, so he pays for his own rehab. He's battled the NFL and the Bengals for years over disability benefits. The Dartmouth-educated Williams felt the need to retire from a vice president's job at Disney in 2007 at the age of 53 to dedicate himself to rehab and saving his leg. So let's hope that he gets better soon in the near future. Well, another story that has been beat to death in professional football has to do with Robert Griffin III. And is he getting along with his head coach, Mike Shanahan, or isn't he? Well, the fact of the matter is, I really don't care. But is he going to play in one of the first games this year, next Monday night against the Dallas Cowboys, when the Washington Redskins open up? Well, Ian Rappaport talks about RG3 and his status for next Monday night's game. I spoke to a source close to him today who said, of course he will start week one in the opener. That was the plan all along. And what this means was when he talked to people close to him, that he's had no setbacks, that everything in his rehab has gone exactly according to plan. This was the idea all along that he would ramp up and get things ready to start week one, and everyone I talked to believes he is on track for that. But the other thing that we need to know is that Dr. James Andrews has not officially cleared Robert Griffin III yet. That's really important to note. Everyone I speak to thinks that it will happen. The plan is for Andrews to meet with RG3 on Thursday night, the site of their final preseason game. So until that happens, RG3 has not yet officially been installed as the start of week one, but everyone I talk to believes 100% that it will happen. And I think it will happen. RG3 will be behind center when the Washington Redskins play the Dallas Cowboys in the Monday night opener a week from Monday night. Well, let's jump to college football, which I said is going to open up tonight. There's going to be several games. We're going to get into that in our second half hour. But, of course, the story of the week in college football has been the same story of the week for the past month, and it's the ongoing saga of Johnny Manziel. Basically, a spoiled rich kid who has been running around since winning the Heisman Trophy, causing havoc everywhere, including Miami at Heat Games, including L.A. at Dodger Games, including at the University of Texas trying to crash a frat party. 
I'm tired of hearing that this guy is 20, 21 years old and he's just doing what youngsters do. Uh-uh. Not every 20 to 21-year-old has rich parents, can hire the best attorneys to fight the NCAA, and have won a Heisman Trophy. Well, he's going to start the season on the bench. Yeah. The bench. For the first half of the Rice game. The Heisman Trophy winner has been suspended for the first half of Saturday's season opener against the Rice Owls, and that was in a joint statement by Texas A&M and the NCAA yesterday. What a joke. I mean, I know the NCAA could not come up with anything, but when you're rich and you can hire the best attorneys, like I said, you can fight the NCAA. He was questioned for six hours last Sunday by the NCAA, He knew exactly what they were going to ask. He knew exactly how to answer them. And he went in with legal representation. Now, had a poor person gone in, let's say a Jadavian Clowney had gone in, first of all, Johnny Manziel's parents are rich. They're giving him money all the time. If Manziel had indeed received $7,500 in cash from somebody wanting him to sign autographs, He could have stuck that in his bank account and just said that it was something from mommy and daddy, right? Jadavian Clowney does the same thing. It's going to show up like a red flag, and the NCAA is going to find it, and Jadavian Clowney is out. Plus, Jadavian Clowney, his parents probably can't afford an attorney like Manziel's parents did. Nonetheless, Manziel's going to be out for a half against Rice, which honestly, folks, He was going to be out for a half anyway. He probably would have played the first half, maybe the first series of the third quarter because Texas A&M is going to blow Rice out of this ballgame. Nonetheless, Clay Travis, college football insider for Fox Sports, talks about this laughable suspension. The NCAA's entire purpose at this point is to make sure that kids that don't have anything don't have anything when they finish school. And I think people and fans are starting to recognize that fact. And when you really break it down, it's pretty indefensible. Now, here, Johnny Manziel's not hurting for money. But this situation, I think the NCAA is so politically weak. Guys, they didn't think they could win the battle of public perception. Johnny Manziel, the best they could get was a half game, Chris. You know, it's funny you bring that up. I'm looking here at the timeline, and, and, and the funny thing that just sticks out in my mind is the fact that his representation is Jim Darnell, who represented Baylor during a basketball scandal, and also Tim Floyd during that basketball situation with O.J. Mayo. And that show, that goes right along with what you're saying is, He's financially wealthy, and, and, and I say that because he's represented well in a situation where if a kid who's struggling financially with income from the family, they're not able to get represented this way. And they represented him in July, so he knew something was going on. And so that tells me right there, when you're doing something wrong and you understand what you're doing, now you go out to get representation, you know they're going to come down on you. Different system of justice for rich versus poor. There's no doubt. When you go hire the Texas attorney with the big white hat, you know you're going to win against the NCAA in the <laughs> right. state of Texas. Not to right mention, though, Clay, he went into that meeting, the six-hour meeting, armed with all the yeah, information absolutely. they already had on him. So did you have you seen this video? Yes. Did you make? I mean, there's so many things that he could defend himself against because he already knew what was out there. How much did that factor into A this? ton. It's funny to me because A&M people got so upset about the way this story was covered. But if you're Johnny Manziel or you're the attorney representing him, guys, you want every possible accusation out publicly so you don't 
lie like Des Bryant did right. about something that's not even a violation. Johnny Manziel knew when he walked in, all he had to do was say, yes, I went into the hotel room. Yes, I signed all these autographs. And when they said, did you get paid? Did anybody you know get paid? No, no, no. It's not a violation, just signing. And they knew what those accusations were already. Because that's why they came down so hard on Des Bryant, because he exactly. lied to them. It's the lying. So what now? Who knows? The NCAA is lost. He's got to play. He, what now? Second half against Rice. Let's go. <laughs> get you some hot dogs and yeah. peanuts. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Just get your hot dogs and peanuts. He's going to play in the second half, maybe for a series, maybe for two. But if Texas A&M is blowing him out, don't expect to see Johnny Football out there very long. It's just a case of a spoiled brat, rich kid, able to get away with what he did. The NCAA had absolutely no proof, and that was the problem. Now, does this set something up? Yeah. What it's going to set up is you stalemate the NCAA as long as you can. I haven't figured out yet if Johnny Manziel is brilliant or if he just stumbled into being the poster child to kill off the NCAA because that's what he has done. He, this is the death knell to the NCAA. Within five years, they will be gone and all college football conferences will be running their own industry. Because not only has this been a problem for the NCAA, you think Johnny Manziel has had a bad offseason? The NCAA has been even worse. I mean, when you look at them being able to sell and make billions, not M, not millions, but billions of dollars off of these kids, every year, and being able to sell their jerseys and being blatant about it, the way that they've handled the Oregon situation, the way they handled the Ohio State situation, the USC situation, the way they've lacked handling the Notre Dame situation, and what's going on in LSU with Jeremy Hill is just beyond reprehension. When you look at that, plus the Miami Hurricane situation, and now the way they handled Johnny Manziel, is NCAA President Mark Emmert's job on the line? I think so. And so does SportingNews.com senior writer Matt Hayes. He talked about this subject on the CBS Tim Brando show. I also think it's, you know, what happened with Oregon last month when, when you have a coach who clearly paid a guy $25,000 to steer players to his, to his program, and Oregon gets slapped on the wrist, and Chip Kelly is the guy who gets the – you know the show cause, the, you know the big, the big bad, uh, the big bad uh, punishment when yeah. there's no more college football. And I think when people see that, and when I when I say people, I mean other university presidents, other athletic directors. When they start to see that, they start to wonder, wait, what's going on here? What are we all about now? With enforcement, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's that's the big deal as much as anything. The Miami situation, when you look at that, I mean they're relying on the, the testimony of a convicted felon, a guy, Timmy whose life revolved around lying, the Ponzi scheme, the $980 million Ponzi scheme. So they're, they're, they're relying on him, his receipts he has, and him saying something twice. If you said something twice, there it is, and, it, and they took it as gold. And to me, that's a red flag, a big red flag. You know, the combination of that, uh, and, and I've always been, and I've said many times when it comes to the NCAA, uh, I think uh, Mark Emmert uh, – you know, he, he's a very well-meaning uh, leader and has done a wonderful job as president of a lot of major institutions. I know Mark. I like Mark. But in this day and time and in this situation, his missteps have been huge. 
and they've been well documented. And you wonder sometimes, just based on everything that's going on out there, and specifically in college football, uh, really how much power does he have or does he not have? And that's really been exposed here. If, if Miami gets no news between now and the start of this season, this is another, I mean, guys like you, me, everybody else is going to go, really, how ridiculous, how ludicrous is this? After Donna Shalala, whom I was critical of many times over, did everything that she could do in terms of self-imposed sanctions to get this dark cloud away from, from Al Golden, and yet they're having to go through it again. I don't know why Mark, just from a public relations standpoint, doesn't tell his enforcement people, hey, do something before Thursday night, will you? Just get it over with on Miami. Okay, because his job may be on the line. It may well be. I think his job on the line was, was on the line months ago, and I, it's, it's just a matter of when he goes into the, to the executive office and says, look, how do we get out of this? How, how do you pay me to leave? And that's how it's going to work. Because really? I mean, it's just, really? You I think it's that way. I think that's the next step. And I think Mark Emmert is probably on his way out, and I think he's on his way out with the rest of the NCAA. The NCAA will probably not be abolished completely, but it will be shrunk into something much, much smaller than what it is now. It would probably be like a mortgage broker. They are just going to broker the television contracts between the networks and the conferences and the colleges. The NCAA is really pretty good for Division Three, Two, and One AA. But as far as big colleges, they have outlived their usefulness. The college presidents have seen the amounts of money that can be made. Why cut the NCAA in for a portion? Just for them to pay for the opportunity to broker contracts with the networks? It just doesn't make financial sense for these universities anymore. When Oklahoma can have their own television network, the Big Ten and Ohio State, look at the University of Texas. They've got their own Longhorn network, which is subsidized by ESPN. And the NCAA, they have just gone downhill in the past few years. They don't know which way is up any longer. And that's what you're finding out is wrong with college sports today. And we're going to be back to talk about baseball, look at the college football schedule, and the final night of the NFL exhibition season right after this timeout. Tragic news out of Cincinnati. It's been confirmed only minutes ago that Cincinnati player Dylan Michael, three-time most valuable player and a member of three World Series championship teams, was among those killed in a plane crash in southern Kentucky last night. Michael was on his way to Atlanta to begin a five-year prison sentence for drug use and tax evasion charges. Last at bat, a novel by Mark Donahue, available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books and & Company. And you can also pick up Mark Donahue's book, Last at Bat, here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Here at the homepage, just click on the right side of the homepage and order your copy today. Well, last Sunday was the final game of the Little League Baseball World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It's an annual event. It's been going on for over 75 years. And Japan managed to win their third championship in the last four years. It's an outstanding event. And I'll tell you what, there were two dynamite teams in Japan and California in that final game. Congratulations to the Japanese kid. But, you know... 
we all learned how to play baseball at the peewee and the little league level. I know there were a few things I learned playing little league baseball. I was a catcher. And, you know, when you wear the tools of ignorance, you get the opportunity to see a lot of things happen on the baseball diamond that you probably don't get the opportunity to see when you're just watching it on TV. And one of the crazy rules uh, are on foul tips. And I learned that the hard way back when I was uh, 9, 10, maybe even 11 years old. And it's one of the little unknown rules about baseball. If you're a baseball fan, you know what I'm talking about, that if a batter foul tips a ball into the glove of the catcher and the catcher catches it, the runners are live. They are enabled to go anywhere they want to go. But if that foul tip hits the catcher's glove or hits the dirt before the catcher would manage to catch the ball, then it's a dead ball and the runners have to go back to their bases. Well, that's something that, as I said, I learned at 9, 10, 11 years of age. And I'm sure a lot of other players that have done it, especially catchers, learned that at that age also. So could somebody please tell the Major League ball player of the Cleveland Indians as Drupal Cabrera, that's the rule? If anybody watched the Indians game last night against the Atlanta Braves, you would have saw as Drupal Cabrera go completely brain dead, and when the ball was foul-tipped into the catcher's glove, he was stealing second base. He saw the ball get foul-tipped. Unfortunately, for some reason, he thought it was a dead ball. So he decided to stop in between first and second and just lollygag back to first base. First of all, he broke two rules. First of all, he didn't know the rule about foul tips. And the second one is you don't go back to your preceding base until the umpire tells you to go back. Well, as Drubal Cabrera, who has had this happen this year on several times, Several several times this has happened as Drupal Cabrera. And it's getting to the point where it's becoming habit-forming. He seems to go brain-dead at the worst possible situations. For example, the first game that the Indians played against the Miami Marlins, it was a weekend series, it was a Friday night about a month ago, and the following week the Indians had the Detroit Tigers coming up. Everyone and their brother knew it was a trap series for the Indians. Azdrubal Cabrera obviously didn't get the memo because the first two balls that were hit to him, one went through his legs and the second one hit his glove and clanked like an iron fist. Now, Azdrubal Cabrera is a good ball player. but He's got to get his head into the ball game if the Indians are going to have an opportunity to not only win the division but also garner a wild card playoff berth. Is Yasiel Puig getting just a little bit too big for his britches? It was reported a few days ago that the Los Angeles Dodgers veterans thought maybe he was getting a little big-headed. Well, it turns out Don Mattingly may be thinking the same thing. Did you see what happened yesterday in the Dodgers ball game against the Cubs? The way that he went after two fly balls in right field, and then what really got Mattingly's goat was the way that Puig did not slide into second trying to break up a double play in the sixth inning. Because of that series of incidents, not sliding, late nights, base running mistakes, Mattingly decided to bench Puig right in the middle of the ball game, and he discussed it afterwards. Well, it's not an action against Jossiel. Um 
today's just a decision that, a simple decision really. I felt like at that point in the game, Skip gave us a better chance to win. And and anything we deal with with uh, Yasiel or any of the players, I'd rather I like keeping it in house. Uh, so I don't think there's any reason to discuss um, reasons why this, that, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. But my decision today was simply based on that I felt like Skip was going to give us a better chance to win today, and that's why I, that's why I did it. And he obviously did because the Dodgers ended up winning that ball game four to nothing. They've got a twenty-one and six record in August, and it it ties the LA Dodger record for most wins in a month. And they've still got three games left to go. But Mattingly talked more about Puig and just how he hopes this is going to turn things around for him. Well, all those things could be true, and, and maybe all those possibly lead to what were what went on today. But more than anything, it always gets back to me to skip give us a better chance today. And and for myself, I, I love these guys. I love all my players. And, you know, I know what's I, – I see the good in all of them. Um, and, and it's my responsibility, I feel like, to, you know, give us the best chance to win and do, make decisions based on what's the best for the, the whole team. And today was – was simply a decision based on felt like Skip gave us a better chance to win today. Uh, I really prefer to keep things in house. Uh, these, anything that happens with guys are never, for me personal. Uh, they're just really things that you try to do and decisions you make that they're best for the ball club uh, that day and, and moving forward. I don't blame Mattingly. Mattingly is an old school manager. And Puig is getting to the point where he is almost like a, a Manny Ramirez, maybe not as flamboyant. But the fact is, I've always said that there was only one manager in baseball history that could manage a Manny Ramirez, and that was Mike Hargrove of the Cleveland Indians. And when Manny became Manny, Mike Hargrove would take him out of the ballgame right away, whether it was a mistake in right field or not running out of grounder. He would take him out of the ballgame right away, basically send him to the locker room, just like sending him to his room, and that would end it for a little while longer. And then when Manny became Manny again, Mike had to bring the hammer down. Now, that is what Don Mattingly is trying to do with Yasiel Puig. Teach him now so that it doesn't carry over into later years. We'll see if it works. Hey, tonight is the opening night of the college football season, and boy, is it going to be an amazing year. We've got Johnny Manziel that is going to play in the second half of Saturday's game. He's the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, but who are the Heisman Trophy favorites for this year? Well, for that... We go to Charles Davis of Fox Sports, who's going to tell us just who the favorites are for the Heisman Trophy in 2013. I'm supposed to give you three, but you know me, I'm going to give you a bonus one. But we will start with the defending Heisman Trophy winner, Johnny Mandel. Johnny Football. I know the offseason's been a little nuts for him, but let's focus on what he did last year. He threw for over 3,700 yards. He led the SEC in rushing, not for a quarterback, the whole conference in rushing. He accounted for 47 total touchdowns and just absolutely was scintillating in the Cotton Bowl win over Oklahoma. He's the defending champ. He's the guy that they have to take the trophy from. He's Johnny Football. The second guy is the guy who has a hit for around the world. Jadavian Clowney from the University of South Carolina. And no, the big hit on Mr. Smith of Michigan wasn't all he did last year. How about 14 sacks? How about four and a half in their rivalry game against a very good Clemson team? They call him the freak. 
he plays a little bit of offense this year, if you hear me, Steve Spurrier, a little bit of offense, he may be the prime Heisman Trophy guy. All right, let's go to the third guy, a guy that I really love, out west, out at USC, Marquise Lee, dynamic, scintillating, a game-breaker. Caught 118 passes last year, 14 touchdowns, adding kick return ability. Remember the 100-yard kickoff return against Hawaii to start off the season on Fox? Yes, that's right. That was Marquise Lee. When they figure out who's going to throw him the ball, this guy is sensational. Put the ball in his hands. All right, bonus pick. Louisville, high hopes for this season for a national championship. He'll be led by Teddy Bridgewater, their quarterback. Forget the stats. Did anyone see him play against Florida in the BCS team in the Sugar Bowl? He plays hurt. He plays strong. He plays aggressive. One of the best quarterbacks in the country, Teddy Bridgewater. Those are my four to start it off for you. Heisman hopeful to begin this season. And Jadavian Clowney is my pick, and they're going to be playing tonight. The South Carolina Gamecocks with Clowney are at home, and they're playing upstate rival North Carolina. That's one of the top 25 games for this weekend in college football. There's one other game tonight. It's going to be late night. Boy, if you are working third shift or you don't have to get up early in the morning, you can sit back tonight and watch on Fox Sports at 11 o'clock. USC opening up their season at Hawaii, taking on the Rainbows. Lane Kiffin, boy, is he on the hot seat this year for the Trojans, and he's going to start out in a two-quarterback system. Petros Papadakis of Fox Sports talks about how he hates this idea by Lane Kiffin, and he talks about that and other football items with Fox Sports' Jill Arrington. USC hasn't played two quarterbacks in a uniform manner since 1995 when Mike Riley was their offensive coordinator. They won the Rose Bowl that year, and it was Brad Otten and Kyle Waholtz. All season, only Otten played the entire Rose Bowl. Waholtz never got in. All season, they did quarters. First quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. Now, I don't think Kiffin's going to do that. In fact, there's no uniform way or plan that Kiffin has to move these guys in and out of the game. Cody Kessler's won this job. But Kiffin loves Max Wittick. He's got a higher ceiling, he's got a bigger arm, and he's got a better body. But Kessler's kind of a slinger, teammate sort of guy, more of a game manager. So it's a very tricky situation. Kiffin wanted Wittick, it seems. He was invested in Wittick. However, Kessler played better, so now he's going to mix and match. But for a year for Lane Kiffin, where everything is on the line, where he has got to become a bigger picture head coach and really look after his defense. He's still calling plays on offense, and now he's brought about the burden of trying to play quarterback roulette, looking in their eyes and saying, okay, this guy is great for this drive. You know, there's no way they know when they're coming in and out. It's not a great recipe. Now, that being said, for the first four games of USC schedule, it should not be an issue. They should be able to dominate these football games and maybe build some confidence there, and he can find his guy. But really, really strange to start the year this way. And like I said, USC opens up tonight, late night, at Hawaii. The Ohio State Buckeyes on Saturday, they open up at home. They're number two in the country, and they take on the Buffalo Bulls. Urban Meyer, head coach of the Buckeyes, was on the Sunday night conversation on ESPN with Chris Fowler. And, of course, Urban Meyer just seems to be a magnet for criticism, not only from the media but other college football coaches. And Chris Fowler talks to him about that, but Meyer says it doesn't bother him a bit. 
I used to worry. I used to worry about it. But about the quiet criticism from your peers, not the media, but fellow coaches. I don't know that one. If there were a head coach's fight club or what happens in fight club stays in fight club, there'd be a few that want to take a swing at you. Is that right? I didn't know that. You seem surprised? Yeah, I don't. I didn't know that. I'm not buying that. I'm very surprised. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Other head coaches? Yeah. Yeah. Did you hold your own in there if you needed to? That's too darn right I hold my own. When you suspend your best running back for three games and there were no charges that remained filed against him, in other words, the law said it's okay, what message does that send? I have a guy that watches for me say, what does this punishment this guy get? If he gets arrested, if he has some issue, what do they do? And I want to make sure ours is harder than anybody in America. Um, not to prove a point, but I just, I just be quite honest with you, I'm tired of dealing with it. You know, I want to move on and, and uh, spend my life as a judge. And so we, we do uh, probably more amount of time with uh, workshops, and I have outside people come in and speak to our team. I speak to our team. I hold our coaches accountable for behavior. And uh, so I'm just trying to do the best we can. College guys frequently ignore potential consequences for their actions or don't think they're going to get caught by breaking a rule or breaking a law. So what's the connection between giving fewer strikes and tougher discipline and curtailing the problem? Well, I think that since the beginning of time in civilization, if they know there's a very harsh punishment at the end of of that behavior, don't do that behavior. So it's nothing new. It's been around for probably 3,000 years. Yeah, but it's debatable whether that actually works. If if that worked, then there wouldn't be any serious crimes. I think it works. I mean, that's why people don't rob banks. You're going to go to jail or the ones that do. You know, there's there's an issue in college athletics with certain, um, you know, substance things that I see it's nonstop. And and, uh, that's an issue right now in college sports. What's the biggest challenge to discipline right now in college football? My... uh, I'd have to see marijuana issue. I'd say I see it not just in college football everywhere, and I've done research just around what's going on in society, and and uh, that's an issue. Different states have different laws. Some of them basically decriminalized it. I hear that debate all the time. What's the difference between a 17-year-old having a beer? That's illegal, and uh, you know, but that's not. Uh, next, the last time I checked, we're not in the uh, making laws. We have to just abide by them and set the set the tempo. Because of the holdover of sanctions and, and some injuries and suspensions, you'll have no more than 72 scholarship players in the opener. Is that a concern well, if you're playing Wisconsin or Michigan in that game and not Buffalo? Yeah, it's a concern anytime. And I know we've had some injuries, and I think we have three or four that have to sit for a game or two. Um, yeah, that's a concern. I didn't realize that. I know we've had three career-ending injuries uh, just in the last week, so we have some serious depth issues. For the most part, we've had a very successful injury-free camp, and I have to keep it that way. We have to keep it that way. The depth issues oh, yeah. keep you up at night? After you just threw that stat at me, I've been so busy, I haven't even saw the stats. So thanks, Chris. I'll lose some sleep over that. And, of course, Ohio State, as I said, opens up at home on Saturday, number two in the country, against the Buffalo Bulls of the MAC. Wisconsin, also out of the Big Ten, number 23 in the country. They'll open up at home against Massachusetts. This is, will be the first game for the Badgers' new head coach, Gary Anderson, coming over from Utah State. Utah State and Utah, by the way, they play tonight on Fox Sports, uh, opening up their season. Texas A&M, we've already talked about them. They're number seven in the country. They play at home against Rice on Saturday. Temple, 
goes to number 14, Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, trying to get back into the BCS championship game. Central Michigan will go to cross-state rival Michigan to open up in Ann Arbor at the Big House. Mississippi State plays at number 13, Oklahoma State. Number 3, Oregon will host Nichols State. Alabama, number one in the country, they're playing at Virginia Tech, but technically it's not at Virginia Tech because it will be played in the Georgia Dome. Eastern Washington will be taking on Oregon State. They're number 25 in the country. Louisiana Monroe goes to number 16, Oklahoma. New Mexico State plays at number 15, Texas. Number 8, Clemson will host number 5, Georgia. Big matchup of two top 25 teams in that one on Saturday. Also out of the Big Ten, number 18, Nebraska, will host the Wyoming Cowboys. Here's another top 25 matchup. Number 12, LSU, goes to play at number 20, TCU. Nevada goes to number 21, UCLA. Florida, number 10 in the country, will entertain the Toledo Rockets out of the MAC. And, of course, Will Muschamp is getting his team ready for the Rockets. We've you know, started talking to our guys more about starting fast, especially on the offensive side of the ball, creating some, some positive opportunities for our football team. Uh, but that goes in all three phases, in kicking game and being able to pin someone back or, or get a big return and create some momentum for our football team, defensively creating a turnover early in the game to create some momentum for our fans, our football team. It's a team thing. It's certainly we've emphasized it, uh, you know, maybe more so than we have in the past, and I know it was, a, it was a, a huge point of emphasis offensively. Well, I think you always go into a first game knowing that there's be a little anxiety uh, with certain players, and, and the, the older guys certainly we lean on them to, to get those calmed down in those situations. But that's part of the first game is the unknowns. The bottom line is if they're the best at their position, they'll start. If they're good enough at their position, they'll play. We don't uh, – we don't really sit back and try and ease anybody into anything. I think we are mindful for the situations we put them in, knowing the anxiety some players more than others uh, will face in their first ball game. Certainly, I feel comfortable about the makeup of this football team mentally, uh, their approach of how they handle things, and, and, and certainly handling the first ball game. I feel very comfortable with that. I don't think Will Muschamp has got much to worry about playing the Toledo Rockets, especially at home. I think Florida is going to get off to a good start. Elsewhere in the top 25, Boise State, number 19, goes to Washington. Number 22, Northwestern out of the Big Ten, goes to Cal. Cal's going to be playing Ohio State in three weeks. Also on Sunday, Ohio will be at number 9, Louisville. And then on Monday, Labor Day, number 11, Florida State travels to Pennsylvania to take on the Pitt Panthers. Here's another game that we should be keeping an eye out for in college football. It's going to be the Battle of Two new football coaches at two old universities. Daryl Hazel is leaving Kent State, and he has taken over the Purdue Boilermakers. They are going to be traveling east to take on Tommy Tuberville and the Cincinnati Bearcats. Of course, the Bearcats lost their coach last year, Butch Jones, to Tennessee. Tuberville came to Cincinnati from Texas Tech. Daryl Hazel led Kent State to a BCS Bowl game last year, and now he takes on the Boilermakers. And he talks just about not only the battle of the first-year coaches, but he is expecting a fight with Tommy Tuberville and the Bearcats. Well, Cincinnati's a good football team. They've won, I think, 10-plus more games in the last five out of the last six seasons. So they know how to win. 
Um, obviously, anytime you go into someone else's stadium, it's going to be in a hostile environment. It's going to be a sold-out crowd. But they play with a lot of passion. Just watch them play Virginia Tech on film yesterday. They play with a lot of passion, a lot of energy, and we got to be able to exceed that energy and be able to overcome some of the adverse things that are going to happen throughout the course of the game. There's a lot of unknowns. I mean, their staff, our staff, how we're going to react on game, all those things that are unknowns. You're going to have to do a good job the first quarter, the first half of adjusting. And you got to adjust in the first half and try to win it in the second. So it's, uh, there's a lot of unknowns. Hazel's a very good coach. He is from Ohio State. Could have possibly been the Buckeyes head coach. He was the, the coach in waiting under Jim Trestle. But he skipped out a year early and went to Kent State. And now he is at Purdue. Look for big things out of the Boilermakers. Look for big things out of Cincinnati. I think they're going to continue on being a winning football team under Tommy Tuberville. Well, as I said, tonight is the final night of the 2013 NFL preseason. Every team is in action. And there are some question marks. Who's going to be the New York Jets quarterback? Is Tim Tebow going to make the roster of the New England Patriots? who are the backup running backs for the Cleveland Browns. Those questions are going to be answered. And is Terrell Pryor going to be the starting quarterback for the Oakland Raiders? That's an interesting question, and we're going to talk to a Raiders writer next week on our show about what's going on with the Raiders. They just cut Josh Cribbs a few days ago. Would you be in favor of the Browns picking up Josh Cribbs? One of the problems the Browns have right now is with their kickoff return team, not their punt return team, but their kickoff return team. And Josh Cribbs might be the type of player that could help them out if the Browns hierarchy would like to bring him back. Let's take a look at what the schedule is tonight. Of course, the Cleveland Browns are going to be kicking it off here in just a few minutes at Chicago at Soldier Field against the Bears. The rest of the schedule tonight already underway. Detroit is playing at Buffalo against the Bills. And, of course, the Bills are going with Tommy Toole as their quarterback at Ralph Wilson Stadium. Philadelphia will be playing at New York against the Jets in MetLife Stadium. The Cincinnati Bengals are entertaining the Indianapolis Colts, the Hard Knocks kids at Paul Brown Stadium tonight. That's already underway. Also underway, New Orleans is playing at Sun Life Stadium in Miami. Jacksonville goes to Atlanta to the Georgia Dome to play tonight. Pittsburgh is in Carolina at Bank of America Stadium taking on the Panthers. The Washington Redskins, without RG3, at least for this game, are in Tampa Bay at Raymond James Stadium, taking on the Buccaneers. Also, the New York Giants are playing in New England. That game is on the NFL Network out of Gillette Stadium. Also kicking off in just a few minutes, Tennessee is at Minnesota, Green Bay at Kansas City, Houston at Dallas, and Baltimore at St. Louis. I'm still interested to see if Kellen Clemens makes the Rams roster. In just about an hour, Arizona will be playing at Denver. And at 10 o'clock tonight on the NFL Network, it's San Francisco at San Diego. And the last game of the night, Terrell Pryor and the Oakland Raiders are in Seattle to take on Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks. That's a look at the final night of the preseason schedule. It all begins in earnest next Week And that's going to do it for tonight's show. Thanks for joining us here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Don't forget to join us next Monday night, Labor Day night, as Mark Donahue and I 
sit back and talk to you about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds and, of course, the big brouhaha with Brandon Phillips and Trent Rosencrans of the Cincinnati Inquirer. We'll be giving you blow-by-blow details on what happened there next Monday night at 9 o'clock here at the UltimateSportsTalk.com Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Of course, that music says that we are on our way out of here. We're going to watch some college football and the Browns take on the Bears in the final preseason game. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening here tonight. I'm Dave Mitchell. Enjoy your Labor Day weekend, everyone. Join us again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock with the Ultimate Sports Talk Show here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Until then, good night, everybody.